Fall is here and class is back in session. And with an all-new school year comes an all-new season of our podcast, Campus Killings. I'm Dr. Megan Sachs. And I'm Dr. Amy Sloshberg. And we're the hosts of Campus Killings. In season one, we brought you 20 episodes covering some of the most sinister crimes to take place on or around school campuses, or the cases we discussed had a school-connected theme. From the recent high-profile cases like the November 2022 Moscow-Idaho murders of four students, to older cases like the 1966 murder of Sherry Jo Bates in Riverside, California, a case with possible ties to the infamous Zodiac Killer. We also touched on cases that played a role in changing campus laws in order to better protect students. In season two of Campus Killings, which debuts on September 16th, 2023, we'll dive into an all-new set of campus-related murder cases. And as usual, we'll include our analysis of each case as both educators and criminologists. We hope you'll check out season two of Campus Killings. And don't worry, if you haven't listened to season one yet, all of our episodes are available to binge right now wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings, All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. It was 1986. Judy Thompson was worried. No, worried doesn't really cut it. She was frantic. Her 22-year-old daughter Lisa was missing. On the morning of August 12th, around 9 a.m., Lisa's boyfriend John had called Judy and asked her if she'd seen or heard from Lisa. No, Judy said. John told her the following. The night before, John and Lisa were in John's car, driving home from a bar around 2.30 a.m. when they got into an argument. John said Lisa had been drinking. The fight was bad enough that Lisa abruptly got out of the car at a red light, swore at John, slammed the door, and started walking. This was at the corner of West Mason and Taylor Streets in downtown Green Bay, Wisconsin. But at 2.30 in the morning, it was dark and pretty deserted. John said Lisa never came home. At 2 p.m. that same day, Judy called the Green Bay Police Department and said she wanted to report her daughter missing. Her report relayed John's story and described Lisa. She was five foot six inches tall, very thin, with long, waist-length, dark brown hair, brown eyes, and pale skin. Lisa had a bruise on her forehead and her upper right arm from a previous argument with her boyfriend, John. Judy reported that Lisa lived with John in the Birchwood apartment complex located at 1141 Packerland Drive, but she said that John had called her and said Lisa never came home the night before. The reason Judy was so certain that Lisa hadn't just stalked off somewhere to cool down or to get back at John was because she left her beloved five-year-old son Jeremy behind. At 2.08 p.m., Officer William Cruiser was dispatched to 1141 Packerland Drive, Lisa's home address, to see what the story was. John, her boyfriend, answered the door. Officer Cruiser's notes indicate that John's eyes were very red-looking and wet, as if he'd been crying. John told him that Lisa was not there. He said they got into a fight and she became very angry with him and jumped out of the car and ran off. This was sometime around 2.30 a.m. the night before. Officer Cruiser drove around the area where John said he last saw Lisa at West Mason and Taylor, but he couldn't find her. But it didn't take long before someone else did. At 3.16 p.m. on the 12th, just an hour after Judy reported her daughter missing, Green Bay Police 911 dispatch received a call from an Alvin Cranforst reporting that a body was partially submerged in the water near Peter's Construction in the Bayport Industrial Park. This was on the northwest side of Green Bay in a marsh near Pete's Lake and Duck Creek. Officers Jerry Johnson and Tom Lind in separate squad cars were dispatched 
and drove to the intersection of Bayport Drive and Hurlbut, arriving at 3.20 and 3.23 p.m., respectively. There, they met with two EMS construction workers, Gerald D. and Steve G. Gerald told the officers he and a guy named Wayne were dumping a load of fill in the Bayport Industrial Park area. After they emptied their dump truck, they were driving out of the industrial park when Gerald caught sight of a hand sticking out of a watery swamp. He backed up the dump truck to take another look. When he got closer, he could see the body of a woman lying down a weedy, muddy, low embankment, three-quarters of the way in the algae-covered marsh water, face down. She was nude from the waist up. They radioed a mayday to their boss, Alvin Cranforce, to call the police. Officers Lind and Johnson followed Gerald's dump truck out toward the spot where the woman's body lay. When it got too muddy for their cruisers to proceed, they got into the truck with Gerald and Steve. The guys drove the officers the rest of the way to the swampy area where their co-worker, Wayne, was standing near the body. The officers observed the body just as described by the 911 caller. Her forehead lay in the mud, but the rest of her was in the water. Her left arm was outstretched toward the shoreline, bent at the elbow, with the exposed hand parallel to her head. Her right arm was behind her back at the belt line. The algae had moved away from the body. Officers suspected that when she splashed into the water, the concentric circles moved the floating material away from the corpse. They noted that the woman in the water was white, in her 20s, and she had long dark hair in a braid. She was nude from the waist up and wearing jeans on her lower half. Officer Johnson radioed Sergeant Gill. When he arrived, the officers returned to their vehicles in the dump truck driven by Stephen G. Their notes remarked that he was nervous and kept asking questions about what would happen. The officers then used their cars to block off the area as the homicide division was called in. They secured the perimeter and kept the swarming media and curious onlookers out. Detective Sergeants Ken Lestino and John Swedell arrived at 3.38, along with Lieutenant Buss. Deputy Chief King, Detective Division Captain Hins, and D.A. Peter Nays soon pulled in as well. The finding of a body in broad daylight in such a public area was a big deal. The detectives photographed and videotaped the scene. Officer Lind and Sergeant Swedell walked the area looking for any evidence. Sergeant Gill noted a full footprint in the soft mud at the edge of the embankment above the body and a shoe toe print just behind it. The shoe print had the logo Speedway or Sportway embedded in the tread. Officer Lind also noted fresh tire tracks in the dirt leading right up to the marsh where the body was. Both of these possible evidentiary items were photographed and plaster of Paris impressions made by Sergeant Stanley Keckhaver and Lieutenant Don Strutz. After the plaster casts were completed, Measurements were taken indicating that the vehicle that left the tire prints had traveled down the dirt road and when the road turned 90 degrees and headed northeast, drove an approximate distance of 225 feet before coming to a stop with the right front tire 15 feet northeast of the body. Sergeant Gill replicated the trajectory of the suspected killer's vehicle by driving into the area in the soft dirt, stopping, then turning slightly and backing out to the curve in the dirt road. This matched the pattern of the tire tracks. The crime scene team also collected shoes from the construction workers Gerald, Steve, and Wayne to rule out their footprints. At 4.54 p.m., police called in the North Military Avenue Fire and Rescue Team. Larry Erdman of the fire department arrived at 5.05 towing a fireboat. He launched it and used the boat to remove the body from the water. Submerged in the swamp water near the body were the following items which were collected. An empty can of Kingsbury beer, an empty can of Mellow Yellow, and a one-quarter full bottle of 1889 Royal California brandy that looked fresh. No latent prints were found on it by lab techs later, but it had an OSCO price tag, which officers noted. Police also collected samples of the swamp water for comparison purposes. Then something really important was fished out of the water from about 10 feet away from the body. It was a woman's white blouse with a blue and white print on it, size small. The brand name was Leslie Ann Fashions. At 4.28 p.m., Officer Nick had arrived on the scene with a photo of a missing young woman from the area. Her name was Lisa Holstead, and she'd been reported missing just hours earlier. When side-by-side comparison was made after the body was fished out of the water, the investigators knew they'd identified their victim. 
At 5.20 p.m., Lisa's mom, Judy, brother Eric, and sister Debbie V. arrived at the scene, along with Lisa's boyfriend, John. Judy had heard on the police scanner that a body had been found in the industrial park. She was crying and told Officer Nick at the barricades that she thought the dead woman might be her daughter. He let them through and sent them over to Officer Johnson. Coroner Tim Blaney and Assistant Coroner Jeannie Williams arrived. Williams used a thermometer to determine the body temperature and then placed Lisa in a body bag. Then the fire and rescue team transported her to St. Vincent's Hospital. The scene was secured at 6.23 p.m. Sergeant Swaddell drove two members of Lisa's family, her sister Debbie and her boyfriend John, to the hospital. His notes said, quote, Both were crying and they seemed sure the body we found was the one they were missing. At the hospital, John identified the body as that of Lisa Holstead. He broke down and began to cry when he saw her, end quote. Sergeant Taylor drove Judy and Eric to the hospital as well. There, they waited while John viewed the body and gave them the news they had dreaded hearing. Judy wanted to confirm the identification for herself, and so she, too, was permitted to view the body. It was Lisa. Lori and Debbie, two of Lisa's sisters, identified the white print blouse found in the water as Lisa's. She had just purchased it at the mall on a shopping trip with Lori. They also reported that Lisa had been wearing sandals the previous evening, tan mesh wedge sandals with a leather ankle strap. Her body was found barefoot. The shoes were missing. And so was a silver necklace that Lisa never removed. An autopsy was performed on Lisa on August 13th at 7.45 a.m. by pathologist Thomas Chuprovich. When Lisa was removed from the body bag, it was noted that she had on a pair of jeans that were zipped up and a belt that was buckled, but it was passed through only one belt loop on the right-hand side. She wasn't wearing shoes or socks or a bra. Her jeans and baby blue underpants were collected into evidence. Dr. Chuprovich determined that the cause of death was ligature strangulation and the manner of death was homicide. What was really creepy was that he didn't have to guess as to what kind of ligature was used. Lisa's waist-length hair was tightly braided that night. She wore one elastic band at the top of the braid and one at the bottom. This from the probable cause affidavit, quote, Dr. Chuprovich noted that when the hair band is transposed upon Lisa's neck, the metal clips that hold the elastic band together align with linear abrasions located on the neck, end quote. Lisa had been strangled with her own hair. Dr. Chuprovich cut off Lisa's braid, and it was placed into evidence along with her clothing. Dr. Chuprovich also detected several areas of bruising on Lisa's body. These were on the forehead, the back of her head, her neck, her left hip and thigh area, the left knee area, and the left lower leg. She also had a laceration behind her right ear. Dr. Chuprovich noted in his autopsy report no sexual injuries. Specifically, the report stated, quote, Examination of the external introitus of the vagina reveals no laceration or abrasions. Tampax is in place. Anal swab for sperm is taken. The anus reveals no lacerations or blood. Examination of the vaginal vault reveals no lacerations. End quote. The tampon was removed from Lisa's vagina and stored in evidence. Later, when it was analyzed, sperm was detected on both ends of the tampon. A hair was collected from Lisa's blouse, and a hair was also recovered from her underwear. Fingernail scrapings were taken from all ten fingers. All swabs and samples collected in the autopsy were sent to the Wisconsin State Crime Lab in Madison, where they were logged into evidence. Examination of Lisa's blouse, the type that's tied in front using the front tails, showed that it only had two buttons left on it, one at the neck and the next one down. The next two buttons appeared to have been pulled or torn off. Two consistent buttons were found in her front jeans pocket. The blouse was torn all the way along the left side seam, from the bottom shirt tail hem all the way up to the left sleeve. Witnesses from the bar where Lisa had been seen with John on the night before she disappeared also said that she was wearing a bra that night. It had been visible when she bent down to take a pool shot. The bra was never found. The medical examiner's toxicology report showed that Lisa's blood alcohol level was 0.25, more than twice the legal limit for drunkenness in Wisconsin. In some nice victim-blaming, headlines blared, Holstead drunk when murdered. And Deputy Coroner Jeannie Williams said publicly, quote, it would certainly hinder her ability to effectively fight back.
Let's talk about Lisa. Lisa Ann Holstead was born April 18, 1964, in Southampton, Long Island, New York. She was 22 when she died. Her parents were Frank and Judy Holstead. Her parents were divorced by the time she was killed, and Frank lived in Germany, her mom Judy in Green Bay. Lisa had three sisters and two brothers. The order was Susan, Debbie, Lori, Lisa, Steve, Eric. Lisa attended local East De Pere High School. Her five-year-old son Jeremy lived with her and her 26-year-old boyfriend John S. in their shared apartment at 1141 Packerland Drive. Jeremy's father was a guy named Edward G. Lisa had met him in California when she lived and worked in L.A. for a short time in the early 80s. Lisa, Edward, and Jeremy moved back to Green Bay, and Edward deserted her and Jeremy when the boy was only eight months old. He was not a part of their life. Lisa and John had been going together since they met in July of 1985 and living together for about 10 months. They met at the Packer Stadium Bar on South Broadway. John said Lisa didn't have a ton of friends outside her family with whom she was extremely tight. She spoke with her mom and sisters every day. Her closest outside friend was Lori B., who was married to Dave S., a co-worker of John's, from Green Bay Dressed Beef, and who was his best friend. Lori told the police that she and Lisa were very close and her murder was very upsetting. Everyone described Lisa as a very outgoing and fun-loving person. She liked to shoot pool, play darts, do shots. Lisa often took her son fishing, something they loved to do together. She loved horses and had a bird named Herbie and, oddly, a pet eel. Lisa was between jobs and had indicated that she was considering looking for one when she was killed. It's unclear to me what she was living on. But her family said she was tough and a survivor. She was also, as I said, outgoing and a little brash. Police notes say, quote, Lisa did not seem to be afraid to walk alone at 1 or 2 a.m., end quote. Her mom and sisters said Lisa would absolutely have given hell to whoever had attacked her. Lisa's son Jeremy was deeply affected by his mother's sudden death. According to the Green Bay Press-Gazette, he told his grandmother Judy that he didn't think he'd be getting the bike his mother had mentioned she would buy for him. When Judy asked why, he said, it's too late because mom's not coming back. Whenever he saw reference to bad people on the TV news, he asked if they were the ones who had killed his mother. Now for the investigation. The industrial park where Lisa was found on Green Bay's northwest side is now within the 116-acre Ken Ewers Nature Area. Back then, the industrial park bordered a recreational area featuring trails and a fishing hole, all of which are in the nature area today. The marsh where Lisa was found was accessible by taking Military Avenue north over I-43 and then into the industrial site via a dirt road heading east and then turning 90 degrees right onto a gravel road heading east, but which then took a sharp turn north. When I pictured the scene, I assumed the area was wooded, but it wasn't. It was a wide-open, marshy, vegetation-covered area. On the east side of the dirt road, three feet from the road's edge, was the watery ditch surrounded by low vegetation. Detective Stino's notes say, quote, To me, it looked like the car may have been driven to where the body was thrown from the edge of the road into the water. It did not look like anything was disturbed from the edge of the road to the water. It did not look like there was any struggle in the area that the body was found, end quote. The story of the body found in the industrial park hit the news very quickly. Green Bay is in many ways a small town, and news travels fast. By 4.35 p.m., Officer Nick, one of the officers charged with protecting the perimeter of the crime scene, had questioned and turned away a number of curiosity seekers who had heard about the story on the news and come down to check out the scene for themselves. The names of all these people were recorded because, as we know, sometimes killers enjoy checking out their handiwork while posing as innocent bystanders. Several of these people said they were regular walkers, bird watchers, or dirt bikers in the area, so they were questioned as to whether they'd seen anything. Also, officers conducted a grid search of the marsh area and used metal detectors, but failed to locate Lisa's necklace, shoes, bra, or any more evidence. Lead Detective George Souls and Detective Cletus Alexander were assigned to the case full-time. They and other investigators spoke with Lisa's family at length. Lisa was closest with her sister Lori. Lori said that the day before Lisa's body was discovered, Monday, they'd gone shopping at the Port Plaza Mall. Lisa bought the blouse that she was last seen wearing that night. Then they went back to Lori's house where Lisa changed into her new blouse and braided her very long hair. Then they met up with Lisa's boyfriend, John S., and more of their family, including Debbie and her boyfriend, Mike, 
their brothers, Lisa's parents, Judy and Frank, and Lori's husband, Robert. They all met up at the bridge bar. Lisa's father, Frank, had returned from Germany for a short leave from his duties in the Army three weeks earlier. He was scheduled to return soon. After that, the group convened at Debbie's house. They all watched home movies that Frank had videoed. When they were done, around 10.30, some reports say that this wasn't 10.30, but closer to 11 or 11.30. They all went to the bar called Dave's Stagger Inn on East Main Street. They left various children, including Lisa's son Jeremy, at home with relatives. At Dave's bar, the family was rowdy and having a good time. Lisa and Lori were drinking heavily and doing shots. They played pool and darts. When the bar closed around 2 o'clock, they all went back to Debbie's house, and they all eventually trickled out and went home to bed. Multiple members of Lisa's family told the investigators that John and Lisa left together in John's car sometime around 2.30 a.m. Lori told the detectives that she didn't know Lisa was missing until John called her the next morning at 9 a.m. and asked to speak to Lisa. He told her they had a fight and Lisa jumped out of the car by Captain's stake joint at the intersection of Mason and Taylor. He said Lisa never showed back up at their apartment. Lori had no idea where Lisa was, but the family didn't panic just yet. There had been a couple of incidents in recent months in which Lisa had spent the night out. In one incident, she got drunk at a bar and ended up sleeping on some guy's couch. In the other, there was some indication she might have had a one-night stand, but no one really knew. She always came home. But as the hours ticked by on Tuesday, the family became more and more concerned about Lisa. John picked up Jeremy and brought him over to Debbie's, and she noted that he was acting very odd. He was quiet, and his hands were shaking while he was drinking a cup of coffee. Then he left. Lisa's family all called around looking for Lisa and checked with area hospitals. Finally, Judy, Lisa's mom, called the police to report her missing around 2. They all gathered at Judy's house and started listening to the police scanner, and around three, heard that a body had been found. Judy called John and told him this, and he came over to her house as well. Then, the 5 o'clock news reported that a body had been located in the marsh near the end of Military Avenue, past the I-43 overpass. They all piled in their cars and drove to the scene. Debbie was able to specify the timeline a little more succinctly. She said that her boyfriend Mike had left her house that night because he had to get up for work the next day. John and Lisa left shortly thereafter. She went straight to bed, and as she did, she looked at her clock, and it was sometime between 2.30 and 2.35 a.m. Detective Munger checked Debbie's bedside clock and found it to be eight minutes fast, so he surmised that Lisa and John had left her place between 2.22 and 2.27 a.m., exactly what John had reported. Lisa and John had driven off together, and Lisa was found the next day in the marsh. It was time to talk to John. After he identified Lisa's body at the hospital, John was brought to the police station and put in interview room 200. He was given a cup of coffee, and then Sergeant Swedell and Captain Hins read him his Miranda rights and began to question him. This is a quote from Hins's notes. All while Hins was questioning John, John was shaking and acting very nervous, end quote. He told them he worked at Green Bay Dressed Beef as a meat cutter. He and Lisa had lived together for nearly a year. They got along well, and so on. John was questioned for several hours. Hins's report states, quote, John denied being involved in Lisa's death. He was very nervous and shaking during the questioning, but was always consistent in his denials. He said he would be willing to take any type of test because everything would show he wasn't involved, end quote. Police notes say that John was given three cups of coffee during his two-and-a-half-hour interview session. I think that would be enough to make anyone jittery and nervous. Here's the story that John told in his interview. On Monday night, August 11th, he and Lisa were at Dave's Stagger Inn with Lisa's family. They were all drinking pitchers of beer and Lisa had some shots. John wasn't too happy about this. After they left the bar at closing time, they went to Debbie's. They left there around 2.30 and drove toward their own home in John's Oldsmobile Cutlass. On their way home, while driving west on Mason, they began arguing. Basically, the argument stemmed from some remarks John made that Lisa was acting inappropriately at the bar. Lisa got mad because, John said, she was drunk and irrational. She threatened to jump out of the car, and when he slowed down for the red light at Mason and Taylor, she did jump out. He told her to get back in the car, but she turned and said F you and flipped him the bird, and then started walking west on Mason. John admitted to the detectives that he left her there, walking west toward Highway 41. 
This wasn't the first time this had happened. Lisa often stalked off when they got into a fight. John drove the .9 miles home, left the door unlocked, assuming she would walk home, and watched TV for a while until he fell asleep. He couldn't recall what he'd watched. When he woke up at 8.30 a.m., Lisa wasn't home yet. He called around looking for her, but he couldn't find her. He called the hospitals and the jail and the sheriff's office. Then he called Lisa's mother, Judy. That afternoon, with no sign of Lisa, Judy called the police and reported Lisa missing. Around 3, Judy had called John and said she heard on the police scanner that the police found a body. When the news reported where the body was located, he and Lisa's family headed over there and then to the hospital. The police asked whether Lisa was the type to have hitched a ride with someone. John told them that Lisa would very likely have gotten into a car with someone because she was drunk and upset, but she would have fought hard if someone accosted her. John admitted to the police that he and Lisa had a stormy relationship. This was an understatement. Sergeant Hinz's notes say, quote, I asked John about the bruise on Lisa's upper arm, and he said that happened when they fought and he turned the bed over on her, end quote. John admitted that on Friday night before Lisa was killed, they had a huge fight and he flipped their bed and it landed partially on Lisa. More on this later. The investigators asked John when the last time he and Lisa had sex was. Remember, they had the autopsy report that sperm was detected on her tampon. John told them the two had sex twice on August 10th, but that was the last time. On the 11th, he wanted to have sex, but she declined because she was on her period. Sergeant Hinz's notes indicate that the officers checked John over for any new scratches and didn't observe anything. After his interview, the police let John go. The reality was they found his story quite suspicious, but they really didn't have any grounds to hold him. Meanwhile, Lisa's family threw John under the bus. Her mom, Judy, told the investigators that John was violent and had beaten Lisa up a number of times. They had seemed to be getting along well until the last couple of months when they started arguing a lot, and John got physical. Lisa had showed her sisters and mother bruises from John beating her. Judy said that normally when the two fought, John would call Lisa an effing bitch and tell her to pack up her things and get out. Judy had warned her daughter to break it off with John before she got seriously hurt. Lisa would often walk out when these fights occurred and head to her mom's or one of her sister's homes. Typically, John would then call looking for Lisa and he would rail about that effing bitch didn't come home or I'm not putting up with that effing bitch anymore. But Judy said that August 12th was different. This time, when John called her at 9 a.m. that Tuesday morning looking for Lisa, he was acting quiet and scared like he was in shock. It was very odd, she thought. Judy compiled a list of things that she and her daughters found strange about John and his behavior. It has to be said that Judy believed that John killed Lisa, and she pretty much let everyone, including the police, know it. She constantly called the cops with tidbits of information that tended to make John look guilty. She basically conducted her own mini-investigation, gathering evidence on John and funneling it to the investigators. For example, she found it very shady that John had changed the sheets and cleaned the apartment the day after Lisa was killed. He never cleaned, she said. Also, he'd been acting like an a-hole at Dave's bar that night, picking a fight with Lisa because she was doing shots and he didn't like it. On the day Lisa was found, the family remembered John had a fresh cut on his knuckle. She said that ever since the murder, John had been clinging unnaturally closely to the family, in a way they found suspicious. After he had identified Lisa at the hospital, John stayed at Lisa's sister Lori's house for a few days. But no one in Lisa's family was comfortable with him being there because they all felt he had something to do with Lisa's death. Frank finally told John he'd have to find somewhere else to stay. And then there was the domestic violence. John's best friend Dave, who was married to Lisa's best friend Lori, told the police he had witnessed the fight in which John overturned the bed onto Lisa over the previous weekend. He had had to intervene, telling John to stop before he really hurt Lisa. Lori also told investigators that John got quite violent with Lisa and she was uncomfortable around him. Lori's brother Gary also knew John and told the police that he saw John beat Lisa up pretty good because he said she was flirting with another guy. An across-the-street neighbor of Lisa and John's at 1151 Packerland, Lori W., was good friends with Lisa. I don't know why everyone in this episode is named Lori. It's very confusing. Anyway, Lori W. said that Lisa and John had serious fights at least once a week. John would yell that Lisa took all his money, was a drunk, and that she was tramping around. Lori and her boyfriend Jerry had actually witnessed the violence firsthand. 
In June, she saw through Lisa's living room window Lisa and John fighting, and he had his hands on her neck, and it looked like he was choking her. Then they spilled onto the porch, and he whacked her head into the railing. She called the police, who broke it up. Lori and Jerry also called the police on July 3rd, when John was choking Lisa in the parking lot at 1 a.m. Officer Thiel responded and found Lisa bleeding where she'd been hit in the mouth. Furniture was broken and the window screen smashed. Police were called back to the apartment on July 13th at 2.17 a.m. on a disturbance call. Lisa was crying and John was very angry, calling Lisa an effing bitch repeatedly and demanding to know who she'd slept with. He ranted that she'd gone out all night with her ex, Roger, and that she owed him the rent payment. In front of the cops, John said, I should just pop her in the mouth and put her in the hospital to teach her a lesson. The responding officers noted that it looked like a struggle had occurred in the bedroom. They removed John from the apartment, still yelling at Lisa from outside the building, and drove him to his sister's house with orders to sleep it off. In the squad car, he continued to threaten to put Lisa in the hospital. The same officers responded to another call to John and Lisa's apartment on August 9th. This was the night of the overturned bed. John was yelling and swearing at Lisa again, and this time, her little son was watching the entire sordid episode. The officers found him on the floor, hugging his knees. There was a hole in the closet door and the wall, and the bed had been upended and was upside down. The officers extracted John and took him outside, and he actually tried to reach in the open ground floor window and viciously grab Lisa's arm. The cops had to wrestle him away and threatened to arrest him. Officer Thiel talked with Lisa and told her she needed to remove herself and her son from John. She needed to get help before she got really hurt. All of this was in police reports. The investigators didn't have to take Lisa's family's word for it that John was a violent, abusive rage monster. It was there in black and white. And others who knew John and Lisa backed all this up. Rick D., a former co-worker of John's who knew Lisa well, said that the two fought constantly. He told the investigators that John was increasingly unhappy with the relationship and was planning on breaking up with Lisa as soon as he got his profit-sharing check at the end of the month. A guy named Tom H. told the police that he was with Lisa and John in a bar one night when they got into a fight. Tom said John came over to him and said, quote, Sometimes I could kill her. Tom told him to take it easy. He'd seen Lisa black and blue many times before. John's vehicle was a 1974 blue Oldsmobile Cutlass two-door. He signed a consent to search for him, and the police impounded and searched it. They noted the driver's seat of his car was wet. They wondered whether he'd perhaps gotten wet dumping Lisa in the marsh, and that's why his car seat was damp. No, John said. He said Lisa had borrowed the car on the 10th, and she left the windows open, and it rained. The investigators checked with the weather service to see whether it had rain on the 10th, and it had. A piece of the seat fabric was taken for comparison to the sample of marsh water, but no link was found. John also signed a consent to search the apartment he shared with Lisa. Detective Stino and Swadell started that search at 10.55 p.m. on the 12th and finished at 11.20. Quote, We couldn't see any sign of a fight or struggle had taken place in the apartment. We found nothing unusual. End quote. Police worked to try to identify the clothing John had been wearing at Dave's Stagger Inn that night. In his interview, they asked him what he was wearing, and he told them he was wearing a pair of brown honcho boots, a pair of blue jeans, and a black t-shirt. Witnesses backed this up. Those items were all found on the floor of his bedroom and photographed and taken into evidence by Sergeant Swiddell. Their theory was that if John killed Lisa and dumped her in the swamp, he would have had mud on his boots and possibly evidence on his clothing. Or maybe his boots had left the shoe print found at the marsh. But comparison to the cast impression of the shoe print was not a match, and nothing incriminating was on his clothes either. John was re-Mirandized and questioned again on August 13th. Captain Hins asked if he could have torn Lisa's blouse when she got out of the car, and he said no, he didn't grab her. He stuck to his same story, and he again denied murdering Lisa. They asked John at this time for head, mustache, and pubic hairs for the purposes of the investigation, and he agreed to provide the hair standards. John submitted to a polygraph exam on August 18th. He again denied killing Lisa and denied ever laying a hand on her. The polygrapher, Detective Taylor, concluded that John's responses were not truthful. In his post-exam interview, John told Detective Taylor that he'd lied. He now admitted that he had grabbed Lisa by the neck or the braid as she attempted to get out of his car that night. He took a second polygraph on August 21st, and the results were inconclusive.
On August 15th, the Green Bay Police Department issued a press release announcing that a body had been found, identified as Lisa Holstead. An accompanying press conference requested that anyone seeing Lisa hitchhiking or walking early on Tuesday morning in the area of Mason and Taylor to please call the police. They also requested if anyone was parked on the end of North Military Avenue and saw any vehicles entering the area to please notify them. The detective division also posted a handwritten sign asking the residents of the Birchwood apartment complex to please call the police if they saw Lisa or any suspicious activity after 2 a.m. on August 12th. Clearly, they theorized that Lisa had not gotten out of the car as John claimed, but that instead they both returned to the apartment, John killed her, and he dumped her body in the marsh. But none of the neighbors from the apartment complex saw or heard anything, at least not from that night. Perhaps instead, it was possible that Lisa had gotten out of the car and John had leaned and waited for her and killed her. One detective went behind the apartment complex where John and Lisa lived and noted that, quote, in my opinion, if John let Lisa out of his car at Mason and Taylor and then he went to their apartment on Packerland, he could have cut through the backyards to Brooklyn's parking lot to this corner of the wood and waited for Lisa. He would have had plenty of time to wait and watch her before she would come past this spot, end quote. So police were stuck trying to find something concrete to connect John to Lisa's murder. They focused on the tire treads that had been found at the marsh. They believed they were all-season, steel-belted tires sold at Fleet Farm. The retailer didn't maintain purchase records. However, they went through some catalogs and were able to find the tire tread design. It was from a tire that was discontinued two years earlier, a Duralon DS Radial 4 from a certain serial number series. John's car didn't have those tires, but his sister's car did. Sharon N., John's sister, said her family had encouraged John to leave Lisa because their relationship was toxic. Sharon's husband had seen Lisa in a bar with another guy on one of those nights that she hadn't come home. They had told John, and Lisa and John had a big fight about it. Police took tire impressions of Sharon's car, even though she said John never drove it. The right front tire had tread patterns like the ones they were looking for and they wondered whether John could have borrowed it to dump the body. But Sharon denied that. A lot of work was done to try to track down these two tires. They checked the tires of everyone named in the case file to see if they matched. People like Dave S., John's friend, and Lisa's dad, Frank. Everyone at the funeral. Investigators also went to used tire stores and noted similar tires on vehicles parked all around Green Bay. People were stopped and questioned for no other reason that they had similar tires on their cars. The tires of every car recorded as going in or out of the industrial park were noted during the days and weeks after the crime. Lisa's case was submitted to VICAP in March of 1987. The Green Bay Police letter to the National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime at the BSU in Quantico provides an interesting summary of the case, which is not very favorable to Lisa and has some shades of victim blaming. It stated, quote, Lisa Holstead was known to be an outgoing person who drank, used drugs, knew and used street talk freely, and did what she wanted to do. She could be bullheaded and had a temper, especially when drinking. Lisa lived with her present boyfriend for the past 11 months, but did not always get along with him. She did not play around on her boyfriend, but was known to flirt. The boyfriend had been physical with Lisa because of her disposition. Lisa also had a child out of wedlock with a previous boyfriend. Missing from the victim's body were her sandals, which were made of woven leather with straps at the toes and ankles and low wooden heels, and an inexpensive plain silver-colored necklace with links that were close together. The area where the body was found is a marsh-type area with roads and the land is being filled in. There is no lighting and no dumping signs in various spots along the roads. The roads are dirt and are soft in spots. The marsh has stagnant water in different locations and a stranger probably would not drive there. Also, the crime scene cannot be seen from the street, end quote. Police believed that someone familiar with the area killed Lisa. No one who was not a local would know how to get to the marsh off the dirt road at the end of Military Avenue. It's not a place one would stumble on. And the casual discarding of her body in the shallow marsh, where she would easily be seen, implies an assailant who did not know his victim and was unconcerned about her being linked to him. Police knew this, and I don't want to make it sound as though the investigators had tunnel vision on Lisa's boyfriend, John S. They certainly suspected him, but that didn't stop them from pursuing every other investigative avenue they could think of. 
On August 14th, investigators returned to the dump site and spoke with the bulldozer operator, Peter Coburn. Peter said that every morning, like clockwork, he graded the right side of the dirt road leading into the industrial park, the same road Lisa's body was found next to. Peter said that he arrived at work at 8 a.m. every day, and he definitely would have noticed the body in the marsh. He would have graded the road right next to it. And also, he always checked the cement culvert 15 feet south of the body to see how high the water was. He said, quote, it would be almost impossible to look at the culvert and not see the body, end quote. From this witness statement, the police inferred the following, quote, From what Peter is saying, it would appear that the body was placed there after he started work. He starts work plowing at 8 a.m., end quote. Police noted that Peter sat about eight feet up in the air while driving his bulldozer, so he would have had a very good view of the water's edge. Also, Peter was certain that the tire tracks were not there when he arrived at work at 8 a.m. This seems like something a road grader would notice, and indeed, it seems the police placed some credence in his statements. If he was correct, Lisa's body was placed in the marsh during the daytime. Then where was she in the intervening hours after John said she got out of the car? Investigators appointed officers to stake out the dump site to see if anyone came back. All cars entering and leaving the industrial park and adjacent recreational area were logged. This made for quite a bit of tedious, detailed work, trying to track down the drivers of these vehicles if contact wasn't made at the time. They also followed up on scores of tips from people who reported seeing cars in the area on the night of the 11th to 12th of August. For example, a Green Bay Police Lieutenant Williams saw a faded, full-size light blue car coming out of the marsh area at 3.30 a.m. on the morning Lisa was dumped. The driver appeared to be alone in the vehicle. Williams thought nothing of it and didn't write down the license plate or anything, but later, after the body was found, began to wonder whether perhaps that was the killer's car. In August 1987, a year after the murder, Lieutenant Williams was put under hypnosis to try to recall details about the car he'd seen coming out of the marsh that night. While hypnotized, he was able to say the vehicle he saw was a robin's egg blue Ford an older model two-door from the 70s with a pitted and rusty bumper. It had a yellow plate with two letters and four numbers. The letters were possibly G or Q. The vehicle was in bad shape and had dirty windows. Without better recall of the license plate, this memory wasn't helpful. And if Peter the road grader was correct, a sighting of a vehicle at 3 o'clock a.m. was unlikely to have been Lisa's killer. Here are some other things the police did in the course of the investigation. They checked out all sexual assaults that had occurred nearby or recently to see if there could be a connection. They tracked down and spoke to everyone in Dave's bar that night. They collected a bra from a man who'd called in saying he'd found one lying in Velp Avenue. Judy had given Lisa the bra she was wearing the night she disappeared and said it wasn't this one. Wrong size. They checked into tips about other criminals who might have committed this crime. For example, a transient had been arrested by the Manitowoc Police Department, and he'd said some things in his cell in a series of weird different voices that sounded as if he was personifying three different people. He talked about Green Bay and severely assaulting someone and possibly muttered something about hiding some shoes. His parents in West Virginia had been contacted and informed the police that he was indeed a violent person. Detective Sergeant Soltz and LaPlante went to Manitowoc to interview this guy, but wrote him off as a nut. Another guy was called in by Sheriff Gardner of the Kewanee County Sheriff's Office. His name was Gregory Allen. Allen was a homicide suspect with a suspected final victim in 1970 in North Carolina, who was strangled and dumped in a secluded area. Sheriff Gardner noted that Allen was a, quote, real pervert, known for prowling and sexual assaults. He would be a good suspect in Lisa's case, he thought. Gardner agreed to check out Allen's tires and wheelbase and see if he had an alibi for the 12th. I guess he did because this didn't go anywhere. Police checked at local cab companies to see if any cabbies had picked up Lisa that night. No one had. They stopped in at all the businesses located in the area Lisa would have passed on her walk home, if indeed she did get out of John's car, as he said. This included the post office, a Hardee's restaurant, Brooklyn's nightclub, and the Playmore Lounge. They spoke with all the employees they could track down who had worked that evening, and no one saw anything except for some postal workers I'll get to in a minute. On August 15th, Sergeants Narat and Arendt attended Lisa's wake at the Proko Wall Funeral Home. The funeral service was at St. Peter and Paul Church, and Lisa was buried at Alouez Catholic Cemetery. The sergeants checked tires, wrote down license plate numbers, and videotaped attendees. 
They checked with Judy, and she hadn't seen anyone strange at the funeral service, and they noticed no one hanging around outside or sitting in their car watching. But then Detective Munger found a witness who actually had seen Lisa. This is what happened. The detective stopped into the Blarney Stone Bar, located at 2475 West Mason, right near where Lisa was last seen, according to John. Munger talked to an employee named Dave S. He and his friend Jim had been returning to the Blarney Stone parking lot where their car was parked at about 1.45 a.m. on August 12th, after closing another bar called Valerian's. They hung out in the Blarney Stone parking lot talking for a while, and then they left. They were in Dave's 1977 Oldsmobile Delta 88 on West Mason at South Taylor, where they stopped for a red light westbound. Quote, a female with long dark hair and blue jeans exited the mid to full size car ahead of them and yelled something at the driver. The cars were in the right hand straight ahead lane. The female ran diagonally across the right turn lane and Taylor Street. The driver of the car leaned across the passenger seat to roll down the window. The female gave the driver the finger and walked swiftly west along West Mason toward Highway 41. The car she got out of drove away west on West Mason. End quote. Both witnesses in the car, Dave and Jim, told the same story. As Deputy Police Chief Langham told the Green Bay Press-Gazette, quote, We have located two parties that were in the car directly behind the victim. We believe this to be factual. They said they observed the victim getting out of the car approximately at 2.35 at Mason and Taylor. They observed John pull up next to the victim after she exited the car, and he tried to get her back in the car. He continued driving west, and she continued walking, end quote. Well, John could not have asked for a better independent verification of his story that Lisa had exited his vehicle and he'd driven off without her. But of course, he could have killed her once she returned to the apartment. The U.S. Post Office was also right on the route Lisa would have walked toward home. Many late-night mail truck drivers were questioned because their trucks hit the road right around 2.30 a.m. And this paid off. Truck driver Jerry S. saw Lisa, or at least he saw a girl with a long braided ponytail wearing a white blouse, cross West Mason Street near the old Carlton Inn, crossing from north to south at exactly 2.35 a.m. on August 12th. She appeared to be heading toward the cluster of bars that included the Blarney Stone. Based on this report, police began to wonder whether Lisa could have gone to another bar or met someone in one of the bar parking lots especially when additional witnesses emerged who may have seen Lisa closer to 3.30 a.m. A witness named Greg M. reported that he saw a man hitchhiking west on Mason Street on the bridge over Highway 41. This was at 3.40 a.m. on August 12th. A short distance west of this man, he saw a girl with dark hair in a ponytail or braid walking east on Mason in front of the Blarney Stone. Their paths were going to intersect momentarily. Another witness, Betty C., was driving to work at the Replay Lounge on August 12th at 3.35 a.m. when she saw a female with long hair to her waist in a braid or ponytail walking east on the frontage road toward Brooklyn's Bar. About a half block ahead of her, someone else was walking. Deputy Chief Langham said, From that time, 2.35, we have nothing until two sightings at 3.35 and 3.40. We have two people going to work and both sighted a girl walking alone that very possibly could be our victim. We're not as sure about this as we are the first two sightings. We don't know where she was from the time she was seen crossing the street until the time she was seen going the other way. And we don't know where she was, unfortunately, after this hour. End quote. The timeline was becoming more confusing, not less. Were all these sightings of the young woman in the long braid Lisa? Had she gone into another bar, pissed off at John and determined to make him wait for her at home? Had she left to walk home at 3.30 instead of 2.30? It was anyone's guess. On October 22, 1986, the crime lab results reported seminal material was identified on the tampon that would permit blood type testing. Two hairs were also recovered that were from someone of African-American descent. A week after that, Judy Thompson wrote a letter that was published in the Green Bay Press-Gazette. It was addressed to, quote, the horrible person that killed our loving daughter, Lisa Holstead. How can you continue life every day knowing what you've done? Apparently, you have no conscience. You think you're carrying this burden alone? Well, you're not alone. Think of what you're putting her five-year-old son through, the mother, the father, and the family. A horrible nightmare which will never be forgotten. You had no compassion when you killed my daughter. 
Time is coming nearer and nearer to confess. I don't know what took so long, but in November of 1986, police requested that John S. give a blood sample and a saliva sample. He signed a consent form and cooperated, and it was done on November 15th at St. Vincent's Hospital. As 1986 wound down without Lisa's case being solved, authorities were eager to provide assurances that they continued to work the case. Lisa's story had quite an impact in Green Bay. A young local woman being abducted, violated, and dumped in a marsh was something that didn't really happen in the small city. Deputy Chief Robert Langan said in November, quote, We're not going to give up. That's the one thing I am never going to do. On February 16, 1987, a meeting was held at the Green Bay Police Department to discuss the status of the case. Present were Deputy Chief Langham, Captain Hins, Sergeant Souls, and Inspector Alexander. They agreed to contact a highly esteemed polygrapher for a third polygraph exam for John S. John initially agreed to sit for this test, but changed his mind on the advice of counsel. John got angry when the police asked him about refusing the poly. He said he'd done everything they'd asked him to do, and they still kept effing with him. If they actually had anything on him, his ass would be in jail, but clearly they didn't. Well, John was right. All they had on him were his history of domestic violence, rumors about his complicity, and a failed polygraph. The police theory about John's guilt morphed into the possibility that Lisa had indeed gone out after leaving John at the traffic light that night. Maybe she had had sex with an African-American guy, remember the two hairs, and when John found out, he killed her. The other working theory was that Lisa had gotten into a vehicle with someone else, someone who killed her. There was certainly reason to suspect that Lisa could have accepted a ride with someone who ended up slaying her. Her whole family said Lisa was inclined to get into cars with strangers. Detective Sergeant George Souls embraced the hitchhiker hypothesis. He described Lisa as an independent-minded girl. He said, quote, She would have thought nothing of leaping into a stranger's car. She did what she wanted to do. She may have had an attitude that, I'm going to get even with him, end quote, talking about John. Deputy Chief Langham told the Green Bay Press-Gazette, quote, The people we talked to say she was a very outgoing girl. She would not be bashful about getting into a person's car, end quote. So police struggled to figure out which theory of the case was the correct one. Meanwhile, Lisa's family put all their eggs into the John-did-it basket. They embraced the rumors that they had heard that after the fight where Lisa got out of the car, John went and got some coke from a dealer named James, who told them that John had bought some coke on the night Lisa died and then came back hours later all disheveled and bought some more coke. Their theory was that John had gotten all coked up and killed Lisa at the apartment. Judy continued to call the police constantly with tips and leads and rumors she'd heard, such as that right after the murder, John's best friend, Dave S., had removed the tires from John's car and burned them. She also heard that his sister, Sharon, had helped him get rid of the body and clean up the apartment. Here's an excerpt from a 1997 article in the Green Bay News Chronicle. Quote, Even seven months following her daughter's murder, Judy Thompson badgered Green Bay police up to ten times a day. Obsessed with the murder, she launched her own search, questioning relatives and friends and hunting through the mire, often for 13 or 14 hours a day, until police warned her to back off. She said, The pain in your heart is so bad, it's hard to get rid of that. I get so mad because why did this have to happen to her? End quote. Police worked with the Crime Stoppers TV show in 1987, in which the show reenacted the crime using a relative of Lisa's, wearing similar clothes and the same necklace, walking at Taylor and West Mason at night. Crime Stoppers offered a $1,000 reward. The show brought in 20 tips, but none of them led to anything new. By June of 1987, the Wisconsin Department of Justice Division of Criminal Investigation, or DCI, had assigned Special Agent Louis Tomaselli to the case. He participated in yet another interview with John S. in July of 87, in which John stuck to his original story. But as lead after lead dried up, police kept coming back to their prime suspect, John. Even though he moved to Michigan, Tomaselli tracked him down there in April of 1988 and interviewed him again for at least the fifth time. Tomaselli told John that the reason they were visiting with him was because they felt the matter would not resolve itself and that he needed to discuss in detail his last interactions with Lisa back in 1986. His job, he told John, was to determine what, if any, culpability John had in the death of Lisa and to, quote, exonerate or determine the extent of his involvement into her death, end quote. 
Tomaselli told John that he felt that John had information he had not revealed to authorities, and this must be causing him some anxiety. His investigative notes say that John, upon hearing this comment, appeared to be very nervous and fidgety, and his stomach began contracting and expanding very rapidly. He then lit up a cigarette and nervously took a few quick drags and then put it out. But John said he had nothing to add. He had been very cooperative with the authorities, told them all he knew, and he didn't feel any further discussion would be beneficial. The case stalled. Seven years later, in 1995, the Green Bay Police Department took another run at the Lisa Holstead case. Detective Sergeant Molitor re-interviewed the family, who reiterated their belief that John had killed Lisa. He also met with now-retired Detective John Sodell, who had been one of the original investigators. They reviewed the crime scene photos together, and they set the scene. Sodell told the 1995 investigators that the original team had not done an extensive search of the apartment at all. They mainly went there to get the clothes John had been wearing. They didn't bring in a forensics team or anything like that. Sodell told Molitor that when they originally interviewed John, he could see his gut shaking through his shirt. He was so scared. Nonetheless, Swadell said he didn't think that John had killed Lisa. He acknowledged that there were several factors that made him look like a very good suspect, but he personally always felt that Lisa could have been picked up by some stranger and they killed her. Swadell had good intuition, but they didn't listen to him. By 1997, Detective Bob Hagland was on the case. He interviewed scores of people in the case file, most of whom said it was common knowledge that John killed Lisa. There were many, many witnesses who claimed that John had made incriminating statements, things like, I didn't mean for it to happen, and she was a fighter. One family member said John showed up at her house the night of the murder saying he had effed up. There were so many such statements in the case file that I asked Green Bay Detective David Graff, who solved this case, whether John might actually have secretly wondered whether he did kill Lisa. Detective Graff told me that a lot of these statements were misinterpreted, exaggerated by the witnesses, or downright made up. Apparently, some of them recanted their allegations about things John said that made him sound really guilty. But the 1997 investigators bought into it all. After all the reinvestigation and people coming out of the woodwork with reports that John had acted suspicious and said things that seemed confessional, Hagland became convinced John had killed Lisa. Further, he learned that John and his new wife were separated and she had a restraining order against him because he was violent. Maybe he was going to kill her, too. In December of 1997, Detective Hagland applied for a search warrant for the blood of John S. A fresh sample was needed as John had last given a blood sample in 1986. Hagland's affidavit in support relied on a number of pieces of evidence pointing to John. These included 1. An interview by Detective Souls and Inspector Alexander of a woman named Darla Kay in June 1987. Darla said that in March of 87, her friend Lori B., the one who was married to John's best friend Dave, told her that John had cried on her shoulder and said, I don't know why I killed her four or five times. Two, a statement made by a Michael Kay to Detective Zettel on May 17, 1997, that while he and John were playing darts at the Fiesta Lounge, John said Lisa was a fighter and that she got physical while he was driving home. He got tears in his eyes and said he didn't mean for it to happen. He then clammed up. Three, the impressions of Judy and the rest of Lisa's family about John's strange and uncharacteristic behavior after Lisa's murder. Four, various statements from the neighbors about the fights between Lisa and John in which the police had to get involved, as well as the police reports on those incidents. And five, the statement of a Dykes J in May of 1999 to the effect that he was doing coke with John one night in 1998 and John said things to the effect of, he said them bitches ain't no good. He said that he choked the shit out of his girlfriend because she was being untrustworthy and sleeping with his friends. He knew only one way and that was to get rid of the bitch. Quote, Affiant is seeking a search warrant for a blood sample from John in order to ascertain whether his DNA will match the DNA of the sperm which was found on the body of Lisa Holstead. Well, the search warrant was approved and the investigators served it on John in his home in Escanaba, Michigan, where he lived in a basement. He complied with the warrant and repeatedly and exasperatedly denied killing Lisa, even though the investigators offered him the chance to say it was an accident, he didn't mean to do it. John stuck to the same story he'd been telling for 11 years. 
Nonetheless, Detective Souls, who was still with the department, told the Green Bay News Chronicle that if the case had a suspect, it was John. Quote, he was a suspect. Nobody could say they saw him go into the apartment. After Holstead left his car, the only one who could have been close was him. The tests were inconclusive, but he was very cooperative. He was never hiding from us, end quote. But Souls was a little more temperate with his remarks than Detective Hagland, who had zeroed in on John and was convinced the DNA testing would seal the deal. And he told the press as much. In an AP News article dated August 13, 1998, the lead blared, an arrest in the strangulation of a woman found dead 12 years ago is imminent. The article addressed the new DNA testing being conducted on the physical evidence. A Green Bay Press-Gazette article observing the 12th anniversary of Lisa's murder quotes Hagland as saying, I know who did it. I know where he lives. I just have to take the time and do the DNA. Well, he was talking about John. Lisa's family was optimistic, probably because the police told them they were closing in on their suspect. Judy told the AP, quote, Lisa's boy is doing great, but he wants to wrap this thing up too. We all want it to end. Well, unfortunately, Hagland put the cart before the horse a little bit. Wisconsin Crime Lab serology analyst Cindy Kubli issued a report dated March 31, 1998. She had examined the fingernail scrapings, tampon, hair and a smear from the blouse, the hair from the underwear, vaginal aspirate and blood standard, all recovered from Lisa. Spermatozoa heads were identified from both ends of the tampon, indicating that semen was present. This wasn't new. Sperm had originally been detected, but now the analyst could extract DNA from the sperm and compare it to DNA of suspects. The tests showed that the DNA profile from both ends of the tampon was consistent. It was DNA from the same donor. The DNA from the semen on the tampon was compared to a DNA profile developed from the blood standard taken from John. Analyst Kubli concluded that John was excluded as the source of the DNA from the sperm fraction found on both ends of the tampon. Record scratch. This didn't mean that the police theory that John killed Lisa after she slept with someone else was incorrect, but it totally put a damper on their case against him. In the early 2000s, the police were reinvestigating the case anew. Lisa's case was now the oldest unsolved case in Green Bay, and it was a thorn in the side of the police department. Lisa's family was still left hanging without answers. In 2000, her son Jeremy was now 19, and he talked to the Green Bay Press-Gazette. He said his mom's murder made him more mad than sad. Quote, I just want justice to be served. I want to know why it happened. Why did it have to happen? End quote. The Halstead clan's tragic trajectory continued when Lisa's sister Debbie died of cancer in 2003. At this time, the investigators decided to follow the physical evidence rather than going the unsuccessful all roads lead to John route. They undertook another round of testing. The DNA from the sperm fractions located on both ends of the tampon was submitted for further analysis. The extracts were analyzed for an STR DNA profile. Wisconsin Crime Lab DNA analyst Karen Daly issued a report dated February 16, 2004, that concluded the same major DNA profile was developed from sperm fractions located on both ends of the tampon, and this time, the DNA profile was entered into CODIS. Well, no candidates were identified. But the investigators still had another piece of physical evidence to work with, the two African-American hairs found on Lisa's clothes. The investigators started by asking Lisa's family about any African-American men she or her family might have hung out with. They learned that at the time of Lisa's murder, her sister Sue had a thing with a black guy named Kenny B. Kenny told the investigators that yes, he knew Lisa. He and Sue had been over to Lisa and John's house and partied there with them. He told the investigators John was a racist who hated blacks, yet another reason to dislike John. Upon request, Kenny signed a consent to provide samples of his hair and DNA. He also provided the names of some of the other black guys who knew Lisa, James G., James S., who worked at Packerland Meat with John, and a Tyree G. For reasons that I cannot explain, the investigation petered out at this point. It wasn't until 2019 when David Graff was now the lead detective on Lisa's case that this avenue of investigation was picked back up. By this time, Lisa's was the oldest unsolved murder in Brown County. Detective Graff noted that one of the most important clues in the case was the two African-American hairs. He reviewed the case file and observed that previous detectives had made a list of all black males mentioned in the case file. They were Kenny B., Tyree G., Ali R., James S., 
James G., and a guy named Tiger Wolf. Graf's notes state, quote, All subjects stated they never had a relationship with her. Of the subjects, Kenny B. and Lee R. had their DNA taken. Lee's DNA was sent to the crime lab, and it did not match the suspect DNA. Kenny's DNA was never sent to the lab. Tyree G.'s and James S.'s DNA was never taken. Detective Graf set about trying to rule all these guys out. Two of the men already had DNA in CODIS, which ruled them out. These were Tiger Wolf and James G. James S. was dead, but Graf obtained a DNA sample from his son, which ruled James out. Detective Graf interviewed Tyree G., who remembered Lisa, and said they had sometimes drank together in Green Bay bars. He willingly gave a DNA sample. Graf submitted that and the untested one from Kenny B. to the lab. Quote, according to the crime lab, neither Tyree nor Kenny is the source of the suspect DNA. Well, that was that. All leads in the case file had now been exhausted. It was time to go to the next step, forensic genealogy. This is the end of part one of the Lisa Holstead case. Part two is available right now.